0: At this point in Romans chapter 8, Paul pauses and asks some questions. And they are questions which are designed to quell your fears. Questions to quell your fears. Time for a summary, says Paul. Time to pause and consider and think through the implications of what's being said. It's always good to do that. The Apostle Paul knows it. So that's what he does at verse 31. The Christian no longer walks according to their old sinful nature, the flesh. Verse 1 of chapter 8. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. Verse 2. The Christian now walks according to the Spirit of God, who brings to you new life in Christ Jesus. This new life brings about a total transformation. The Spirit of God renewing, bringing spiritual understanding, belief, faith, trust. Your mind now set upon the things of the Spirit of God who dwells in you, verses 5 and 9. Or as is also presented in those verses, you are not saved. And so you still have a sinful nature, the nature in which you are born, and you still live according to that sinful nature, according to the flesh. That is the way of death. You cannot possibly please God in your sinfulness. You are at enmity with God, which only leads to death if you have never repented and trusted in Christ and ultimately that means eternal death eternal condemnation and punishment for your sins in those opening 11 verses condemnation and death are mentioned five times but if you are in Christ if you've turned to him from your sins to love and trust him that condemnation and death are done away with now because the Lord Jesus has taken it all he's taken it upon himself as your substitute at the cross and in those first 11 verses Christ is mentioned seven times because there is salvation in no other because there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you may be saved You have everything you need even in this one chapter to know exactly where and how you stand before God. How do you stand before the Lord this evening? Are you in Christ Jesus? Or are you still in your sins? There's no excuse. And it is to God that you must answer. But if you do come to know God through Christ, what wonderful blessings are yours. As Paul continues, just in this one chapter, salvation, adoption, to be God's child, for him to be your heavenly father, to have an eternal inheritance, to be an heir with Christ, At the same time, there will be sufferings for Christians to endure. That's from verse 17. And at times it might be very costly indeed. But the glory of what lies ahead in eternity is so sure, so vast, that it is foolish to actually pause thinking that the sufferings may not be worth it. The Spirit of God will provide the help and the comfort that Jesus promised he would. All the things that occur in this world and in your life, they really are being used by God for good to those who love him, to those who are his called ones, and all according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and he will do it. Those he predestined, he's called. If you're a Christian, he's called you, and he's justified you. And one day you will be gloriously, wonderfully glorified. ...at the return of Christ. And now, says Paul, time just to pause for a moment. Time to consider and think through some of the implications of all of this. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul asks a series of questions. And as you pause to consider them and think them through you will actually find that they quell all of your fears. Now, he begins with a very general question at verse 31. And then he asks several very specific questions. And this evening, we'll take things as far as verse 34. And here is the general question in verse 31. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Now, of course, he's asking a question to state a very key principle. But, of course, you can actually state things by asking questions. And that's how Paul tackles this little section of his letter. So here is the general question to introduce the key general principle God is for us and three things need to be clarified in considering what is said there first off by using the word if if God is for us Paul is not intending to suggest that there could be some doubt about it if God is for us, is not leaving the door open to the suggestion that he might not be. The word if is being used to prepare us to see a contrast and to make a comparison. If this is true, then that must also be true. But that truth depends upon this truth. If this is true, there can be no doubt about this truth and consequence over here. That God is for us, since God is for us, his saved people. How can you come to any other conclusion than this on this side here? So that's the way he's using the word if. If it helps, then you could use the word since instead. Since God is for us, therefore. The second thing is, who are the us? In verses 31 and 32. He uses the word us four times in those two verses. And likewise says, what shall we say? Who is the we? Who is this us? Well, in verse 32, he's going to go on to talk about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's approach it to begin with like this. For whom did Christ die? Did he die for everyone without exception? Are all people who have ever lived saved if God died for everyone without exception. Well, the contrasts that are drawn throughout this whole letter, and even in the first half of chapter 8, cannot possibly allow us to come to that conclusion. The whole of the Bible can't allow us to come to that conclusion that Christ died for everyone without exception. If Jesus died for everyone without exception, chapter 8, verse 1 would simply read that there is therefore now no condemnation, full stop. Wouldn't it? Why the clarification to those who are in Christ Jesus? Because not everybody is. And the question is, are you? Are you saved? Are you one for whom now there is no condemnation? Or, as Paul talks about us, is it the case that in terms of Jesus dying, he actually died for no one in particular? He just made it possible for anyone who wants to be saved to be saved. He just opens up the possibility. He hasn't died for anyone in particular. Well, of course, the problem with that is that it leaves wide open the possibility that no one chooses to be saved. And so his death is a complete waste of time and actually achieves nothing but again, from all the things that we're reading, well, that can't be true because clearly there are those who have been saved. And Paul has actually told us already in chapter 3 that if this, was the, if this was what Christ had done, if in his dying he hadn't actually died for anyone in particular, it's just down to you to take the opportunity if you choose to. There's a problem with that approach because Paul said this in chapter 3 there is none righteous, not a single one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside, they've all become unprofitable. There's none who does good. Destruction and misery are in their ways. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one would choose Christ, no one would care less. No one does care less until the Holy Spirit comes and changes you and makes you born again. No one would seek after Christ. No one would be saved. No one seeks after God left to their own devices. Or did Jesus die for certain ones in particular that every single one of them would be saved and that not one drop of his precious blood would be wasted at Calvary in redeeming sinners to himself. The angel declared, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said, John chapter 5 verse 21, The Son gives life to whom He will. To whom He will. Chapter 6 of John's Gospel Jesus speaking, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John chapter 10 remember how the other week I said John's Gospel is full of theology in a way that the other Gospels aren't. Not that they have no theology in them, but John's Gospel is so different. John chapter 10, Jesus speaking, I lay down my life for the sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep Hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. How more clearly do you want the Bible to say it? And then what have we read in Romans 8? Whom he foreknew, he predestined, and called, and justified, and will glorify. These are the us in verses 31 and 32. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you turned from your sins? Have you taken hold of the Saviour that these things may be true for you as well? And a third thing from This opening verse, by asking who can be against us, Paul is not suggesting that no one ever will be. How can he be suggesting that after everything he's just said about us suffering with Christ? And again, as I said this morning, this is why verses must always be read in the context of of the whole passage in which they're found, not just plucked out in isolation and be misapplied. No, what Paul is doing here, uh, well, he's doing an Elisha. You remember Elisha, don't you? And his servant. The Syrian army is bearing down upon them in 2 Kings chapter 6. And the only thing that the young lad can see is the vast array of Syrian soldiers and horses and chariots. It's all he sees. And they're against us. Lord, I pray, said Elisha, open his eyes that he may see. What does the scripture say? The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And you can imagine him going through 360 degrees and there's not one degree where there is a gap in the horses and chariots of fire. Who are these Syrians when God is for us? Who is this man, Goliath, when God is with David? That's the sense of it. God is for us. What does it matter who comes against us? God is for us. God will always do that which he pleases to do. None can stay his hand. All things are working together for good. There is nothing that can thwart that. There is nothing that can prevent God from accomplishing that. There is no thing that can do it. There is no one that can do it. If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter who's against us. He's not suggesting no one ever will be. What he is saying, it just doesn't matter who it is. What can they do to us if God is on our side? And now, by means of further questions, Paul will bring to your remembrance certain ways in which God has demonstrated that he is for you, so that you are in no doubt. And so that he can quell all of your fears. So let's consider, secondly then, how has God shown that he is for us? Verse 32, in not sparing his own son. Now, we've already dealt with an important part of this verse in considering who Paul is talking about when he says, us. Paul will now argue from the greater to the lesser. If this is true, then this also must surely be true. Paul will remind you this evening that God has already done for you the greatest thing that any father could do. There was once a time when God decided that he would put to the test the faith of one man. What what is the greatest sacrifice that any father could be asked to make? What is the greatest pain that any father could be asked to endure? Abraham. Abraham. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and there offer him as a burnt sacrifice on the mountain that I will show you. And as God saw Abraham's obedience... God spared Isaac. Actually, far more than that, God spared Abraham, the pain. God spared Abraham, the sorrow. And God provided a ram as a substitute. But God did not spare his own son, A substitute for us was needed and Jesus is that substitute. And despite God's love for his own son, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God delivered him up, up to the cross. Now it's true Wicked men were planning and scheming, but there is not one single plan or scheme of any wicked man or woman which lies outside of God's sovereign will and providence. Those Jewish leaders believed that the death of Jesus of Nazareth was all their own doing, and pretty pleased with themselves about it they were. But it was all God's doing. And actually, God was even more pleased, despite what it had cost, because his Son, in loving obedience, had accomplished that for which he was sent. On the cross, 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ lay down his life for his sheep. He saved his people from their sins. He did it there. He did it then. Done. Accomplished. It is finished. It said, no greater love has a man than he lay down his life for his friend. Actually, there is a greater love than that that God the Father would lay down the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not spare his son, and he did it for sinners. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Are you a sinner? You need saving. That's what Jesus came to do. And having been saved, having been adopted as his child, how will the Father with Christ not freely give us all things? Having done the greatest thing that any father could do, why would God now choose to withhold from you those things that you stand in need of in order to live a godly, faithful, obedient life serving him and loving him. In the death of his son, the Father has given you the greatest provision. Why would he now withhold from you lesser provisions, yet things that you still are in need of? Why would he do that? In order that you might endure the sufferings that he calls you to suffer, will he not freely give you all that you stand in need of? In order that you can do that, having already proven his love for you and his devotion to you in sending Christ, will he withhold from you that which is promised you as an heir? There's no greater thing that God could do to prove his love for you than that which he's already done through his Son. Look again to the cross. Look again to your crucified Saviour. Would God now abandon you? Would God now forsake you? Would God now desert you? Would God now renege on all his promises? After what he put his own son through for you? Would he now make Christ's death count for nothing? Look at what God has done. Why would he not be there for you now? Giving you all the help and comfort and encouragement that you need. And do remember also, this is not a verse to name it and claim it. This is not a promise to grant you all of your fleshly whims and desires. God is not the genie in the bottle who is obliged to grant you all of your selfish wishes. This is your loving Heavenly Father who's promising to provide all grace. This is God who is saying, I will will be with you to give you all that you need so that you can set your mind upon the things of the Spirit, verse 5. I will give you all the grace that you need for every trial, for whenever you suffer with Christ, verse 17 to fulfill all things that are necessary for you to live and to fulfill the will of God in your life and serve him? Will he not now, with Christ, freely give us all things that we're in need of as his people? Even when that might mean, for you, what you see written there in verse 35, tribulation, distress, Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril. And sword means martyrdom for Christ. And this is the promise of both the Father and the Son. The Father will do this with Christ, with Christ. And it's all by means of the Spirit that they send to dwell within you. We see here, uh, continually through this chapter, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the three who are one, the one who is three, working and moving, saving, redeeming, strengthening, giving all grace. This is why whenever, wherever, whenever anyone is baptised, It's always in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because it is the God who is the three in one who is your Saviour. How has God shown that he is for you? He did not even spare his own son for you. And, verse 33, in declaring you, justified how has God shown that he is for us in declaring us justified who shall bring a charge against God's elect elect you see Christ died for certain ones in particular that every single one of them might be saved and that not one drop of Christ's blood would be wasted at Calvary in redeeming sinners to himself Those he foreknew and predestined. What? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It doesn't matter what accusations may be brought against you. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Imagine a court case. Everything's been going really well as far as the accused is concerned. His defense team have played a blinder. They've played a blinder. Everything that's been presented as evidence against the accused has been kicked into touch with ease. Everything is heading towards a judgment of not guilty and a resounding acquittal and the pronouncement from the judge that the accused is free to go. And then, at the very last moment, the prosecution from out of nowhere produce a piece of evidence, produce a witness that blows the whole case wide open and leaves the accused looking very vulnerable indeed. We thought he was safe, we thought he was home, and dry. We thought it was just a matter of formality now, and the declaration would come from the judge, not guilty, not condemned, and then all of a sudden, everything is in disarray. That will never, can never happen to you if you are in Christ. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who can bring an accusation against you that's going to do anything which will in any way put a dent in your being saved and in your being secure in the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing. Nothing. On the judgment day, you will stand before the Lord and you have nothing to fear. Because God has already declared you justified in Christ. It is unshakable. It is immovable. It is eternal. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and that is never going to change. These are truths to quell your fears. Your sins were laid upon Christ at the cross. If the accusers come, point them to the cross. Point them to the Saviour. It's all been dealt with there. His righteousness forever imputed to you you are no longer guilty before God you used to be and rightly so but no longer and Christ will present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy nothing will prevent that from happening Now, Paul goes to great lengths to remind you that this does not now leave you at liberty, therefore, to live however you want. But it does mean that even when you do struggle with sin, on those occasions when you do find yourself giving in to temptation, as you look at other Christians and you find yourself thinking, I'm nothing compared to them. I don't have their gifts. I can't serve like they serve. You are as justified as any Christian can be justified. Because it's all founded upon God in Christ. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. And God would quell your fears. He is for you. As one of his elect... There has never been a moment in all of eternity when God has not been for you. He foreknew you. He chose you. He predestined you. For all of eternity, if you're a Christian, for all of eternity, God has been for you. That's why he had to send Christ. Because he's always been for you. And he always will be. And finally, God demonstrates that he is for you in that the risen Lord Jesus intercedes on your behalf at the right hand of the Father in heaven, even now. How has God demonstrated that he is for us? In raising Christ to intercede for us. Verse 34. There are those who would want to condemn you right now for the things that you believe as a Christian concerning sin and salvation. There are those who would want to condemn you in the world today concerning the exclusive claims of Christ that no one comes to the Father except by him. And if you stand and declare that truth, there will be those who will immediately be on your case and will want to condemn you. For the moral code of God and for the word of God that you believe to be an unshakable and unchangeable and eternal standard of truth. And if you stand and declare it and say, this is what I believe, they will be on your back and they will be condemning you. For all these things and more, the world would condemn you today. Listen, says Paul, forget what they're saying. Don't be troubled by what they're saying. Don't be discouraged by what they're saying. Don't be afraid of what they're saying. None of that changes anything. Jesus died for you, for your sins. Jesus rose again the third day. Sin and death are defeated. And the risen life of Christ is the guarantee that you now have newness of life in him. And here is the sign that the Father has accepted what Christ has done and that you are no longer condemned. In heaven, right now, there is a man in the body of a man at the right hand of God the Father. How can that be? Because that man is also God. And there, Christ is continually interceding for you. Christ is is confirming and declaring before god the father he she one of my sheep one of the ones that you gave me there they are one of the ones for whom i laid down my life this one now washed clean through my blood this one all their sins are forgiven and christ intercedes for you before his father The day is coming when, for a time, Christ will leave his Father's side. But the only reason he's going to do it is because he's going to come back here and take us to be with himself and he'll return there straight away and that time we'll be there with him. And in the meantime, Christ confirms before his Father that you will be amongst that number as he intercedes for you. And if you want to know what you mean to Christ. If you want a glimpse of Christ's heart for you before his Father, go home this evening and read John chapter 17 and listen to Christ praying for you. You can read the Bible and hear Christ pray for you. And he continues to do that even now at the right hand side of his father that's what you mean to him and he's coming back for you and he's praying to his father that all these things will be fulfilled he's praying lord let me not lose any of them let me when i return for them let me bring every single one of them back here in this place that we've prepared for them and in the meantime Be for them their help, their strength, their comfort, their peace, their joy. Be to them their everything. And your Savior intercedes with His Father for you right now. Tell me that makes no difference. Tell me that makes no difference the Son, at prayer before his Father, pleading your cause that you might safely, obediently, gladly walk the path that God has chosen for you and to do so with perseverance for his sake, for his glory. It changes everything and it certainly tells you That God is for you. He did not spare his own son. So he's not going to forsake you now. You are forever justified. And even now in heaven. Your saviour pleads your cause. What do you have to fear. When such a God as this is for you.